Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Eight days ago, we celebrated the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the flesh. That makes this the octave day of Christmas, and on octaves of holy days, we would normally celebrate a Mass with essentially all of the same propers as on the feast day. And indeed, the Mass for today does share some of the same propers as Christmas. But on this octave, we're marking something unique, though related to Christmas. On the eighth day, after celebrating the birth of our Lord in the flesh, we commemorate the first wounding of that flesh. Today, we mark our Lord's circumcision according to the Old Covenant. Why eight days after Christmas? Because in Jesus' day, a Jewish baby boy was supposed to be circumcised eight days after his birth. And so we read in today's Mass Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 2, verses 15 through 21, which actually picks up right from the last verse at the midnight Christmas Gospel reading. This is what happened with Jesus. He was circumcised eight days after his birth. So we celebrate that eight days after Christmas. In case you're a little fuzzy about the whole circumcision thing in the Old Testament, It began when God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, and then reconfirmed in Genesis 17 that covenant, and God promised that Abraham would be the ancestor of many nations. This is when God changed Abraham's name from Abram, meaning exalted father, to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. God's covenant with Abraham was that he would be the ancestor of many nations, that he would father kings, and that his offspring would worship the same God as Abraham, God Almighty. God told Abraham that as a physical sign in the flesh that they belonged to this covenant, he and every male in his household, eight days or older, was to be circumcised. Why circumcision as the mark for this? Well, it's an indelible mark, for sure, one that will never go away. But it's not on the face or the arms or the legs or the chest or the back or anywhere that may be seen easily at some level of undress or another. So it's not a mark that would immediately distinguish a male of the covenant from any other male of the surrounding nations. It's in a place, though we think less honorable, as St. Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 12, is actually shown greater honor, an unpresentable part which is treated with greater modesty. It's not like what many Hebrews would later adopt in like wearing curls of hair or boxes with verses from the Torah strapped to their head, or other exterior indicators that they are Hebrew or Jewish. It's more secretive, private, intimate. And that may be because of what it's supposed to represent regarding the human side of the covenant. One aspect of that being to carry on the covenant, which is why it's on a part of the body that specifically has to do with the beginning of children, the carrying on of generations, and so the extending of that covenant through time. But it's also a mark that's gained through pain, through a wounding and bloodshed. So whatever pleasure there may be in the beginning of offspring, the sowing of seed, as it were, there was always to be the reminder between the sower and the receiver, the man and the woman, the only two who know of the mark in their shared intimacy, that God Almighty, who has promised so much, has also required something. Not just what's removed by this mark, but what it actually signifies, what God told Abraham when he established the covenant. Walk before me and be thou perfect. So every male with this covenant mark was to follow the law perfectly? Well, not 
the Torah, the law of Moses, like we might think initially, no, that came 400-something years after this covenant with Abraham. The way God expected Abraham and his descendants to walk before him when he established this covenant was to walk in faith, as Abraham did when God first told him of the covenant that he would establish with him. Genesis 15, 5-7 says, And God brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he, that is Abraham, believed in the Lord, and God counted it to Abraham for righteousness. St. Paul in Romans chapter 4 makes clear that Abraham's part in the covenant was the simple belief and trust in God that it would be as he said. The rest was all on God's part. Eventually, Abraham's descendants would live in Egypt as slaves, be rescued from Pharaoh by God, and then prove themselves to be unfaithful in the desert. So they were given an entire law code, a schoolmaster or tutor, something to give them a more rigid set of boundaries and guidelines, something to help them learn more about the heart of God, the intimate, honorable will of their Lord. But with the coming of that law and the perfection of all its precepts came the realization that none of them could perfectly keep it. What's worse, many of them misunderstood its purpose and thought that it was a system which bestowed righteousness on its most careful followers through adherence to its letter. And so, this older covenant practice of circumcision came to be likened to all the other articles of the later Mosaic Law and was included among them. This brings us to our Lord and his birth, or rather eight days after his birth. Today, he and his Blessed Virgin Mary, along with his guardian, the righteous Joseph, may still have been sheltering in that same cave in which he was born, or they may have finally found a room in some inn, or they may have had to go to the local synagogue for this rite to be accomplished. But they were certainly still in Bethlehem and certainly still in very humble circumstances. It may have either been a local rabbi or St. Joseph himself who circumcised the baby Jesus, whose name, Jesus, was also given to him officially during this ceremony, as the angel had told Joseph. And so Jesus, whose name means the Lord saves, was wounded just eight days after being born into this world of ours. He already had the astounding humility to enter the world of his own creation, not as the highest and mightiest of its creatures, but as a zygote, a tiny single-celled organism in the womb of Mary. The full divinity of the Godhead united to that cellular form with no consciousness, no memory, no recognizable human features, his new little form grew over nine months, and then, in the course of human pregnancy, he was born and laid in a feeding trough for farm animals. Just as his little body would be getting used to the strange lights and sounds and sensations and surroundings, he would be laid out and forced to endure the cold edge of a sharp flint rock or metal knife. His flesh would be cut into, and his blood would flow. From the foundation of the world, the Word of God, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, knew of his own incarnation and of this very moment, and the unfathomable humility, he assented to it. He assented to this pain, this marking of his human body and the unrepresentable place that he would henceforth treat with the greatest modesty. But why? Why did he assent to this? One reason was obedience. He, knowing his entire life would be for the whole world an example of the perfect human life, and intending to use his life for, among much else, moral instruction for us, he demonstrated that humble obedience and submission to the structures of authority above us, 
if they be just, is in itself a virtue, because willing submission fosters within us a sense of humility and an antidote to the sin of pride, that most dangerous and insidious of all sins. And so within his first eight days outside the womb, he already submitted to what, as the human son of a faithful Jewish mother and foster father, was right and proper for him to undergo, though he had no need of it. Because he was the fulfillment not only of the law, which you remember came 400-something years after the Abrahamic covenant, but of that covenant with Abraham itself. The focus of that covenant with Abraham was not necessarily many offspring, though he was clearly promised that, but rather, as St. Paul emphatically notes, a single offspring, a single seed, who was Jesus Christ. It was to Christ, not the nation of Israel, that the land was promised as an inheritance forever, and for that matter, all of creation. And it was Jesus Christ who would be the only offspring of Abraham to ever fully keep the terms of that covenant by having perfect faith in God. Again, see Galatians 3 and Romans 4 for much more of this from St. Paul. Jesus also willingly submitted to undergo the rite of circumcision to embark on the road of suffering which would terminate on the cross, so that his entire earthly life would be bookended by bloodshed to show that no moment of this life of ours is guaranteed to be free from trouble, but that Jesus has hallowed all of life from cradle to grave, from one cave to another cave in his case. It's the Orthodox faith that in undergoing all of our human experiences as God incarnate and the new head of our race, Christ has sanctified and made holy all of those experiences such that we can now undergo them as little Christs or in a Christ-like way, and thus lifting up all those experiences from cradle to grave, from what may have been a futile end to having a redemptive end. He also underwent this rite in order to meetly draw it to a close, it wouldn't have been proper for him to end the old rite without undergoing it himself. But since he did, he gives us the new rite, baptism and the sealing of the Holy Spirit, to replace the old one. When God established the rite of circumcision with Abraham, he gave it to him while sealing his covenant through a mystical action. He commanded Abraham to divide the carcasses of several animals so that a narrow aisle was between the two halves of the bodies. Very weird. And through the midst of this alleyway of death, God's presence passed in the form of a smoking censer and a lamp or a candle, in the form of a pillar of smoking cloud and a bright pillar of fire. God also led the people of Israel through the narrow midst of the Red Sea with certain death on either side as they came out of Egypt, and then through the midst of the Jordan River as they entered the Promised Land. So the association of circumcision with this covenant pattern of coming through the midst of death with God into new life made the new pattern given by Jesus as he went into the waters of the Jordan himself in order to sanctify those waters with his own body so much more powerful. And now as Christians are put into the water that is into death and are raised out of it again with Christ, the new covenant of Christ's faithfulness, not Abraham's, is what marks us. This mark is sealed in us through the chrism of oil in the confirmation rite, as the Holy Spirit circumcises our hearts, as St. Paul says, cutting away anything that doesn't belong there. The intimacy of that old mark was only an imperfect beginning to the true intimacy of the new circumcision of the inmost heart. 
And the new mark is not only for males, because the way of propagating the old covenant is no longer primarily through the bloodline of a chosen people, but by spreading the Christ life through the evangelism of our lives, through the words and the deeds that we do, something men and women can do, converting people to the faith that they may be brought in also through the new rites of baptism and chrismation. There's even a continuity of the pain of the old rite in the new rites, not just in the unpleasant plunging into the cold water in baptism, sure, that's there, but in the blow upon the cheek, the confirmation slap that it's sometimes called, that the priest gives those being chrismated, even babies. This is obviously a very gentle little touch on the cheek, but the symbolism is still there. Get used to turning the other cheek when one is slapped, as Jesus commanded us, because this, this is the way of the disciple. We must take up our cross in order to follow. So, we celebrate this first wounding of the Son of God because it shows us, one, his humility and example of obedience. Two, his sanctifying of our pain from the very beginning of life so that it has a redemptive end. And three, his fulfilling of and concluding the old rite in order that he might establish the new rite for his church. We celebrate the wounding of his flesh even as we're still in awe that he took flesh at all. We've barely been able to contemplate with any suitable time or reverence the incarnation of God, and he's already begun using his flesh to work our salvation. Thanks be to God for his power, his glory, and his majesty, but also for his weakness, his poverty, and his humility. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.